of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've just passed into a new year, and as such, we will often wish one another a blessed new year. Do you know what we're saying when we wish someone a blessed new year? We're expressing the desire that God will bless them, that he will extend his goodness and his care in their lives. Is there any basis on which we may express this desire for God's blessing on family and friends and brothers and sisters? Yes, indeed. The Lord has promised that he will extend his blessing to all his people. The opposite of blessing someone is cursing them. Properly speaking, a curse is calling on God to bring his judgment and wrath on someone else. In our society, when you make someone mad, they may say, damn you. And for most people, that's just an expression of annoyance or irritation. But what it actually means is, may God condemn you to hell forevermore. Cursing someone is crying out to God to mete out his wrath on that person. In our text, we see how Balak, king of the Moabites, together with the Midianites, had sent for Balaam to come and curse Israel. Balaam was a world-renowned sorcerer, a clairvoyant, a seer, who had traveled 650 kilometers to come to Moab. He was known as a diviner, as someone who had ability to discern the future through visions or omens. Balak had come, called on him to come curse Israel, saying, I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So what does getting a sorcerer to come and curse Israel have to do with our lives today? In Numbers, we see Israel's enemies seeking to curse them and destroy them. In the same way, the Christian church has enemies that seek to destroy it. In our society, there are many who oppose the teachings of the Christian faith. They cannot stand the fact that we teach that the only way to get to heaven is through faith in Jesus Christ. They're fundamentally opposed to Christianity's teaching about the family and marriage and sexuality and gender. There is a gathering storm of secularism in the Western world. It's no, really, it's no longer really all that cool to be a Christian. After unmarked graves were discovered at some of our residential schools, Five churches were burned to the ground in late June last year. In all, 56 churches have been set aflame or vandalized in 2021. It's an outward expression of the hatred that there is against the Christian church. Yet not everyone overtly attacks the Christian faith. And many of the attacks are much more subtle TV shows have popularized the idea it's okay to have sex outside of marriage. 
In the 1960s, over 90% of Canadian couples were married. Today, that number has fallen to little more than 60%. In our society, abortion has become a civic right because people say a woman should have control over her own body. If you want to function in the public square, you need to give lip service to the LGBTQ community agenda. If you don't, you're going to be attacked and shamed and ridiculed. The point I'm making is that in many ways the church is being cursed by our society. To date, our society is mostly okay with whatever we do in private when we worship God. But speaking about your faith in a public square is frowned upon, especially if your faith does not agree with society's views on life, sexuality, or gender. There's forces in government among the world's elites, in the tech industry, and in the media who are gunning for us. They want to mute the influence of the church and of Christians in society. And if we refuse to be silenced, they seek to destroy us. How does that make you feel, beloved? Do you think we should just try to get along by withdrawing from public life and Remaining silent? Are you worried that if we engage in discussions with neighbors and workmates or present our views on social media, we'll come under attack? Do you think that the forces of evil in this world have the ability to curse us or destroy us? Our text teaches us some interesting things that address these matters. We'll see what happens when Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel. I preach to you God's word under the following theme. The forces of evil cannot bring a curse on the people whom the Lord has blessed. It's because the Lord is sovereign, because the Lord is faithful, and because the Lord is with us. Balak, king of the Moabites, was terrified at the horde of Israelites camped on the border of his land. To him, it seemed ill-advised to take military action against the Israelites. They had already defeated the two kings of the Amorites. So Balak decided to attack Israel in a different way. He figured that if he could get a renowned sorcerer like Balaam to curse Israel, he would then have the ability to destroy them. Uh, Balaam desperately wanted to curse Israel according to Balak's request. Part of the reason was to enhance his ego. Yet the Bible makes clear that he was very interested in earning a large fee for his divination services. Before he went, Balaam sought permission from the Lord. And the Lord said to him, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. Balaam sought to get the Lord to change his mind. The Lord said to him, if the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. And Balaam saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. He was still intending to do whatever he could to earn his lucrative fees. As a result, the Lord was angry and he sought to destroy him on the way. Although Balaam was a psychic, a fortune teller, 
who was normally paid to discern messages from God in mysterious ways. He could not see the angel of the Lord standing in plain sight, ready to kill him, while his donkey could. The Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and it speaks to Balaam about how the Lord was opposed to what he was doing and sought to kill him. And thus the Lord put Balaam in his place. He showed him that he is powerless before the Lord, the living God of Israel. Here already Balaam begins to get a sense of the Lord's sovereignty, that he is fully in control of his people and what happens to them. Balaam's ready to turn around and go home. But the Lord permits him to continue his trip. He said, go with these men, but speak only the word that I tell you. Balaam is not free to say whatever he wanted or whatever he thought he could get away with to earn his divination fee. He's only allowed to speak the things God commands him to say about Israel. King Balak was not aware of the restrictions that the Lord had put on Balaam. He didn't know about the talking donkey. He wanted Balaam to reach into the world of the spirits and the gods to manipulate them and so bring a curse on Israel. But as soon as Balaam arrived in Moab, he told Balak, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. Balak thought this was just diviner's talk that for a diviner to influence the gods, he must show himself to be a good servant of the gods. He didn't take Balaam all that seriously. But Balaam was committed to speaking only what the Lord told him to say. He didn't dare oppose the Lord, for he knew it would cost him his life. Numbers 23 begins with Balak taking Balaam up to a high place from which he could see and the people of Israel. Uh, Balaam tells Balak to build seven altars and offer a bull and a ram on each. Now these were costly offerings, the most expensive animal sacrifices one could bring. This was on top of the expense of twice sending envoys to persuade Balaam to come and the promised fees of divination he would receive upon the completion of his contract. Yet despite all this expense... There was no guarantee of Balak receiving any message from the gods or of that message being favorable to him. All that Balaam can say is that he would go further up the mountain. Perhaps the Lord would meet with him and that whatever the Lord showed him, he would tell Balaam. In Numbers 23 and 24, we read of how the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth four times. Each time Balaam was commanded to speak according to the oracle that God gave him. Balak wants a curse. But God uses the opportunity to tell Balak and Israel and us what he has in store for his people. We read three of these oracles together this morning. They make it clear that the Lord had blessed Israel and that he would continue to bless Israel his people. They make it clear that the forces of evil cannot bring a curse on those whom the Lord has determined to bless. The heart of the first oracle is found in chapter 23, verse 8. Balaam says, 
How can I curse whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? Here we see how Balaam tells Balak that ultimately he was not empowered to bless or curse anyone. He was but an instrument of the gods. In this instance, he was only permitted to speak in accordance with what the Lord revealed to him. What becomes clear in our text is that Israel is special among the nations. The Bible makes it clear that you can divide all of, two, all of humanity into two groups. There was Israel and then all the Gentile nations. Today we would say there is the church and the world. God's people are different from the rest of humanity because the Lord has claimed them as his own people because he has established a bond of love with them. We are set apart by God, the recipients of his grace and love. In Balaam's first oracle, the Lord reveals to him how he had blessed Israel in the past. The Lord promised Abraham, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth. God made it happen. Balak and the Moabites were confronted with an innumerable horde of people. In the space of less than 500 years, the people had multiplied from one barren couple to a nation of several million people. It happened because the Lord caused them to be fruitful and multiply. It happened because the Lord had protected them from Egypt's genocide. It happened because the Lord's blessing rested on his people. Just like God's blessing rested on Israel, so it rests on the church today. Why? Because we are God's chosen people, his treasured possession. Christ bought us with his precious blood and claimed us as his own people. When he ascended into heaven, the Father has given him all authority in heaven and on earth. God put all things under Christ's feet and made him head over all things for the sake of his church. The point, beloved, is this. When God's blessing rests on us, the forces of evil cannot bring a curse upon us. Our loving God simply will not allow it. Already in number six, we saw how the Lord's blessing rested on his people. Each time they worshipped at the tabernacle, the service ended with the priest speaking these words to the people. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. As Christian church, we are God's people today. We're sons and daughters of the great king. We're dearly loved by the Father because of the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Because of God's great love for us, his blessing rests upon us. 
because he is sovereign king, he will not allow the forces of evil to bring a curse on us. Brings us to our second point, and it will see how the forces of evil cannot bring a curse on us because the Lord is faithful. After speaking what the Lord commanded in the first oracle, Balak was dismayed and said to Balaam, What have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have done nothing but bless them. Balaam answered, Must I not take care to speak what the Lord puts in my mouth? Balak took Balaam to another place from which he would be able to see only part of the people. Balak figured that if it was not possible to curse them all, perhaps it was possible to curse at least a part of them. Again, seven altars were built and seven bulls and rams were offered. Again, Balaam moved away from Balak and the princes of Moab to hear what the Lord spoke to him. Again, rather than cursing the Israelites, Balaam blessed them. Balak desperately desired Balaam to curse Israel, but instead he tells him, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. In other words, you cannot get God to change his mind about Israel. This people is different from all other peoples. They are special, and God is not going to change his mind about them. Balaam continues his oracle saying, Has he that's God said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? With these words, Balaam makes clear the steadfast love and the faithfulness of the Lord. The Lord had made covenant commitments to his people Israel. He promised to make Abraham into a great nation. Well, that's been accomplished. He promised to give Abraham's offspring the land of Canaan as their own possession. Well, the Lord has brought them to the fields of Moab, across from Jericho, to the border of the land. (coughs) He was about to fulfill this promise too. Balaam says, Behold, I received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot revoke it. The Lord's faithfulness to his people is revealed clearly in verse 21 of our text. Balaam prophesies that the Lord has not not beheld misfortune in Jacob, nor has he seen trouble in Israel. The word translated misfortune has the basic meaning of misdeed, wrong, or iniquity. But it also includes all the disastrous effects that come from such sin. The word translated trouble has the basic meaning of toil or labor, but it includes the trouble, the oppression, the distress that come with it. What Balaam expresses is that the Lord has not seen sin or iniquity in Israel, nor the resulting trouble or distress that comes from it. Is that really true? Was Israel not guilty of much sin and iniquity? What about the golden calf? What about Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? What about Israel's incessant grumbling and complaining as they passed through the wilderness? Did not Israel suffer 
distress and sorrow because of its sins? What about the different times when the Lord sent a plague upon the camp? How about the 15,000 people destroyed at the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram? What about all those people who died when the Lord sent fiery serpents into the camp to punish his people for once again complaining about the way in which God provided for them? So what does it mean when our text speaks about how the Lord has not beheld iniquity in Jacob or distress in Israel? What this means is that when God Most High looks at Israel, he sees something different than what he sees among the heathen nations. With the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Moabites, and the Canaanites, God sees evil. He sees iniquity. He sees sins, but not so with Israel. Is it because Israel is better? No, we know that's not true. But still, God looks at them differently. He looks at them in love because they are his people. The Lord is not willing to see evil and iniquity and sin. Among his people. Beloved, our text is not saying that God is ignorant of his people's sins. He knows them all. But remember, Israel was God's chosen people. A God had established a tabernacle in their midst. All the sacrifices that the Israelites offered there spoke of how they were indeed a sinful people but of how the Lord was willing to transfer their sins onto the animals that they sacrificed. And the result was that the Lord saw his people as a holy nation, as a kingdom of priests. They were a special people, the people of God's favor. He had redeemed them from their sins. He had set them apart as a people dedicated to him. We know that the sacrifices of the Old Covenant point forward to Jesus Christ. He is the Lamb of God who is offered for the sins of the world. The Gospel makes it clear that it is by faith in Jesus Christ that we share in His righteousness and holiness. When God looks at us, He looks at us through the lenses of the cross. Because of Christ's sacrifice, God chooses to no more remember our sins, to no longer hold them against us. In Christ, we are righteous. We are holy. How is all this possible? Why is it that we, of all people, are so richly blessed only because of the faithfulness of our God. Only because of the bond of love that he has established with us. And because he is a God who keeps his promises throughout the generations. It brings us to our final point, And it will see how the forces of evil cannot bring a curse on us because the Lord is with us. Balaam's second oracle continues with the statement... The Lord their God is with them. 
and the shout of a king is among them. He says, for there is no enchantment against Jacob, no divination against Israel. Balaam goes on to speak of the mighty things that God has wrought for his people. He compares Israel to a lion that rises up, that will not lie down again until it has devoured its prey. In the third oracle, Balaam, in his third oracle, Balaam gives, something special happens. Balaam did not go, as at other times, to look for omens. Instead, Numbers 24, verse 2 tells us that when he looked at Israel, the Spirit of God came upon Balaam. And thus, Balaam prophesied about Israel's future. He says, how lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your encampments, O Israel. He pictures Israel living in peace and prosperity. The poetic language that he uses is anything but a curse. In fact, he pictures paradise restored. Balaam again speaks about a king and about how his kingdom shall be exalted. He shall eat up the nations as adversaries and break their bones in pieces. Israel is like a lion, crouched down, ready to spring on his enemies. Balak had called Balaam to curse Israel so that his mighty horde at his borders would be destroyed. But instead, Balaam prophesies about how the Lord's people, no, instead, Balaam prophesies about how Balak and his people would be destroyed. Balaam's prophecy ends by speaking these words about Israel. Blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. Our text shows what happens when the kings and rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his people. The Lord does not allow them to bring a curse on his people. Because he is Israel's God and they are his beloved people. He will not allow others to destroy them. How can we be sure that God will protect us and preserve us? Well, our text makes clear that God dwells with his people. The Lord is not just a God far away seated on the throne of heaven above. He dwelt among his people Israel in the tabernacle. Today he lives in us through his spirit. His presence assures us that he knows our circumstances, that he will not let the ungodly curse his people. So how, beloved, does the message of our text relate to our circumstances today? Well, in the Western world, there is a gathering storm of secularism which will not leave the church untouched. Many in our society are willing to live and let live, at least on most issues. Yet our culture continues to change. In the time after the Second World War, Western society was greatly influenced by Christian values. The sexual revolution changed how people thought about their sexuality. The birth control pill and readily accessible abortion made it possible to have sex without consequences. Especially Hollywood has played a central role in normalizing the idea 
that sex outside of marriage is okay. It's not until 1967 that homosexuality was decriminalized in Canada. It was not until 1973 that it was removed from psychiatry's handbook as a mental disorder. I remember how in the 1990s, the first TV shows introduced same-sex relationships into mainstream TV. Today, there is nothing in the public square that will get you in trouble more quickly than claiming that homosexuality is a sin or disapproving of such a lifestyle in any way. You'll be labeled as homophobic. You'll be shamed and ridiculed. Late last year, our parliament passed Bill C-4, a so-called anti-conversion therapy bill. This bill forbids anyone from seeking to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual or gender identity to correspond to their birth sex. It's okay to counsel or encourage a heterosexual person to become homosexual, but not vice versa. It's okay to counsel or encourage a person to seek a sex change, but not to discourage them from doing so. Parent, teacher, counselor, or pastor who teaches biblical truth on these issues is now liable to up to five years in jail if they're convicted of breaking this law. Our world is turning upside down. Lies are being propagated as truth and the truth as lies. And increasingly there are people, especially within the LGBTQ community, who are gunning for Christians. Do you understand why? Well, you see, beloved, most of our society no longer believes in absolute truth. They believe that you can have your truth and I'll have my truth. But the Christian faith is absolute in its teachings. What the Bible teaches about gender and sexuality has not changed. That's why increasingly it's the Christian church and Christians who are getting targeted. We are viewed as being ignorant and intolerant. Does all this scare you? Are you worried about being ridiculed and slandered by our society? Or being the target of a lawsuit? Or being convicted of a crime for promoting biblical truth? If we are faithful in our Christian witness, such things will happen, perhaps sooner than we think. And yet, beloved, we don't have to become anxious or worried. Do you know why not? Because God is sovereign. Because he is faithful. Because he is with us. God is in control of all that happens in this world. He may permit the church to be persecuted. We may need to undergo suffering. But Christ has promised that he will build his church, that not even the gates of hell can prevail against it. 
often it's especially in times of persecution, that the light of the gospel shines forth brightly and that God gathers more people into his kingdom. We may trust in the faithfulness of our God. Christ has conquered sin and Satan and death. God promised that nothing, not tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, will separate us from the love of Christ. Don't fear this world. Don't fear the forces, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Simply trust. God is in control. He loves you. He will be with us. The forces of evil cannot bring a curse upon us because God has blessed us. Beloved, I want you to consider for a moment the manner in which we end our services. The blessing is not just a way of dismissing us. It's not a time to pack up your Bibles and put on your coat. The blessing is actually the highlight of the whole service. Pay attention. Drink in God's words of promise. Each week, the Lord reaffirms. He will bless you and keep you. He will make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. He will turn his face towards you and give you peace. It's only under that blessing that we're able to live and work for God's glory and our neighbor's benefit. Amen. In response to the gospel message, let's rise. We're going to sing together from Psalm 109, stanzas 1, 11, 12, and 13.